Welcome to Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. We're halfway to spring and that'll be great. Also today, the highly successful actions against weapons manufacturers to Land Force 21 in Brisbane recently. I'll be speaking with one of the organisers, Zelda Grimshaw. Democracy on life support in Malaysia with activist and environmental consultant Lee Tan. Part two of the webinar conducted both at the Centre for Social Justice and Inclusion at UTS, titled Palestine and the Media. Introducing the recent history of Colombia with Sasha Gillies-Lakakis. But he's back, Mr Kevin Healy, with his week that was. A week, Jane, listener, when, well, I wrote a week that was for last week, thinking my phone would be working, yet thanks to NBM it took another week but sloth and procrastination set in, and I thought, why waste a script? So this is the weeks that were, but also show not much changes anyway. Thus, big supremo scuttled in more, Lashson, a.k.a. Scummo, his minister for stuffing up the COVID response, Greg Haunt the Sick, and the team told us they were doing such a magnificent job vaccinating the country, they were now able to allow those susceptible to getting blood clots to get blood clots. It's a kinder and faster death than COVID. But they pointed out it was up to the individual to make the choice. The Caring Business Class Party believes in freedom of choice, and as individuals, we have chosen to blame everyone else. And Scomo and Greg and the team attacked those who suggested the vaccination rollout was a shambles, assuring us the blame lay with those criticising, those diverting attention from the fact they had stuffed up the rollout by not having the vaccines they wanted. That's the vaccines for which you're responsible, Greg. <clears throat> that is rubbish. Greg looked very angry. They want to vaccinate people, and clearly they're responsible. It's up to them to ensure they have adequate supplies. Oh, which you don't give them. Don't interrupt so rudely. Let me finish. It's up to them, and by not having adequate supplies, they are dodging their responsibilities. Greg displayed his impeccable logic. When the pejorative Dan government locked down Melbourne recently, we asked Scuttle them, you said they were destroying the economy and totally irresponsible and should have followed the lead of your very close friend, Gladys Berejilokamin, in New South Wales. Uh, yes, totally irresponsible, an attack on mums and dads, small businesses, and jobs, jobs, jobs. Uh, but Gladys has locked down Sydney. Yes, and it's important to realise we're all in this together. I'm sure Scummo has prayed ardently for God to make COVID go away, so I wonder what that says about the value of prayer and the dear baby Jesus. Speaking of resurrection... Mentioned Scuttlebim, Greg and the team. Well, the team's had a few changes and what a boon for the week that was and satire generally, the resurrection of Barnacle. After they descended into the depths to one of those submarines they complain about and scraped him off the bottom. The deposed Michael McNeau comeback told Parliament a few days earlier he wished a plague of mice would attack, would bite their children, run rampant in their beds at night, eat their food and overrun the big city trendies who oppose real progress like coal mines and dry riverbeds. Ironic, really, because within days Michael himself ran into a plague of rats. <laughs> Nothing to do with Barnacle, of course. He just popped into a hayseed and sheepshit party meeting and popped out as the new leader, such is his spectacular popularity. 
The changes were such they, they made the Minister for Fossils and Beautiful Coal Keith Pitpony almost look good as they also resurrected Bridget over troubled waters, declared the environment didn't need any water. What a waste, she displayed her ministerial qualities. Just flowing down the river system, doing nothing for the economy, unlike the great agricultural and pastoral and resource industries who understand the true value of water. I reckon even Scummo would be praying that Barnacle and that lot could also go away. This week, as in this week, listener... Remember a few weeks ago we reported Keith Pitpony had vetoed a proposal by the Northern Trublawazi Development Fund to support a, a wind farm. Keith telling us wind and solar were now mature enough to develop without government assistance. Well, this week Keith announced he was funding a multi-billion dollar coal mine explaining how it was good for all of us, jobs, profit and all that. So obviously coal is not yet mature enough to survive without government funding. And as I said, Barnacle, Bridget and the team almost made Keith look good. Water. When it rains, it pours, doesn't it? So spare a thought for poor old AG Hell to the Planet, creating some sort of record earlier this year by having an environment effects hearing actually knock back its proposal to operate a floating gas import terminal at Crib Point on Western Port Bay. After all, EESs are generally predetermined a facade to allow the developer stroke polluter to develop and pollute at it, her, his heart's content. Knocked back, outrageous. Even though AG held to the planet and its very credible experts assured the thousands of objectors flushing recycling hot residue into the bay day and night would have no effect on the ecology, no effect on the environment at all, or as they all say, the environmental impact will be minimal. Knocked back, unable to provide us with all that lovely imported gas, which on the high seas would have passed the lovely gas we export all over the world going the other way. Nothing but logical, the greatest little economic order of them all. And now, oh, it gets worse. About that time, AG Hell to the Planet decided to demerge, to bundle cleaner stuff, the greenwash stuff, into a company still carrying the AG Hell 2 name and a second company with all the polluting coal mines and power plants and the nasty stuff with no mention of AG Hell 2 in the new title, Axel, harmless benign Axel, running delightful entities like Loy Yang, Trubler was his biggest polluter. Perhaps Axel is short for Axel rating climate change, if there is such a thing. Well, the bloody market investors have seen the company values slash just because they think, and let me say I don't want to have a bad word for the market, which we all admire, just because they think coal mines and nasty stuff are quite as popular as Barnacle and his team of fossils assert. So spare a thought for poor AG held to the poor shareholders, as I said, it never rains but it pours most of which, of course, is down to A.G. Hill2's long-term contribution to the environment. Nonetheless, it wasn't all bad news from the market, and obviously good news for lazy, avaricious workers with the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review headline P1 last Thursday week. Market delivered stumping returns in best year since roaring 1980s. Troubler shares have posted their best financial year in more than three decades, 
delivering thundering returns for investors that recall the go-go days of Wall Street and sending the market value of blue chips beyond $2 trillion for the first time. Isn't that the most exciting news we've heard for, for well, for three decades? At last, the end of slow wages growth. I imagine the generous shareholders enjoying their windfall will be contacting their boardrooms, celebrating the chance to end slow wages growth. At last, the time is right for a wage rise. Sadly, unfortunately, bad news, listener, the time is not right. A selfish wage claim now would stifle the recovery, place a crippling burden on the poor caring employers and sour their celebrations of their windfall, confirmed for us by the Chamber of Profits, Rick Bloated. The problem, as Rick pointed out, is that workers must increase their productivity if they want an end to slow wages growth. Ah uh, yes, where have these windfall two trillion dividends come from, Rick? From the markets, from the dedicated work of the caring business class. Uh, what about those who work for the caring business class? What about them if they got off their bums and lifted their productivity instead of complaining about slow wages growth, they'd be a lot better off. They're so selfish because they cause us to lose so much sleep worrying about slow wages growth and how we can address it. Uh, the shareholders are not sitting on their bums, Rick. They are the doers, the lifters in this society who take all the risks, like being injured or killed at work. They take the real risks. We decided it would be a waste of time to ask Rick how come with many caring employers complaining about the difficulty in finding staff that that great tenet, the laws of supply and demand, the market, doesn't work for wages. It would have distressed him too much. Interesting little by the by listener, a week before the two trillion shareholder windfall story, the same paper informed us total federal and state government debt had reached two trillion dollars. Just thought I'd mention that. Indeed, more trouble for caring employers generally as the state government made underpaying workers a criminal offence, leading the Chamber of Profits to complain, quite rightly, that this is yet another barrier in the path of the caring business class going about its business. A barrier, we asked. Uh, well, yes, obviously it will make it much more difficult to underpay workers, uh, which is always inadvertent. Always. See the man who brought us the oh-so-successful coalition of the killing invasions in Iraq and Afghanistan, Donald Rumsfeld the Arabs, went to the great battlefield in the sky, meaning now he'll never know what he didn't know. Donald was so surprised that they couldn't find any weapons of mass destruction in Iraq because, in an earlier life, he had sold them to them. In the US of, former Big Supremo Donald Trump or the poor's famous modesty was on display again when he told us the book he was writing, which would explain why he didn't lose the election he lost, would be the book of all books. The greatest book ever, ever. The book he is writing? Maybe. His previous tome, something about making fortunes, was actually penned by a ghostwriter, but okay, maybe he is writing it. One problem is... All respectable publishers have so far refused to have anything to do with it. Something about credibility. Wonder why. Self-published, Donald. The greatest self-published ever, ever. Finally, what an appropriate way to celebrate NADOC week 
that a proud Indigenous young woman won the Wimbledon final. We're always expected to barrack for the true blue Aussie in these situations, even if their opponents, stroke opponents, might be far more likeable or decent human beings. But I'm sure in Ash Barty's case, we were all barracking for her. Interesting, the previous local woman to win on the Wimbledon grass was also Indigenous. Suddenly, just check, the Lord Rupert of Wapping tabloid stable, suddenly, Terra Nullis, non-land, non-people are applauded as, accepted as, real true blue Aussies. Good afternoon. No mistaking, Mr Kevin Healy. More than 70 innocent refugees are still being indefinitely detained in detention centres and secure hotels around Australia. Over recent months, many fellow detainees have been released onto bridging visas. Those remaining are desperate to know why they are still held. It is indefinite, it is cruel and it is unlawful. Every day a group of supporters protest this brutality outside the Park Hotel at 701 Swanson Street, Melbourne, where 11 men remain trapped and whose hopes are fading and whose mental health is declining. The aim of the protests is to raise awareness of the situation for the general public, but also to show support and solidarity to the men inside. It is also for the approximately 200 refugees still held offshore. Please come along any weeknight at 6pm or weekend at 3pm. I think Welcome to Country is a very dangerous concept and initiative. I really don't know where Welcome to Country even merged from. I know that I don't think it was a, obviously an Aboriginal initiative. I think obviously governments had uh, introduced that as they were pacifying our flag of resistance. You know, the idealism that lies behind that obviously is so that white people can feel a sense that they're more guests and they've got a right of ownership and to be here. If we're going to continuously welcome them to country, what that does, it rectitudes the fact of the moral racism issues in which they perpetrate against our people because how can we be talking about all these other issues and then compromise a hypocrisy in our own selves to welcome these murderers and these uh, slave traders and this barbaric sense of what they've done to occupy Australia on one hand and, and welcome them on the other. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. consequences it revealed continue. While people around the world are suffering COVID and wars, weapons corporations are making a killing by exporting terror around the world. Salada Grimshaw is a grassroots activist for earth rights and human rights. I first met her 
back in 1999 during the time of the UN administered ballot on independence for East Timor. SELDA has moved on to work in many environmental campaigns, particularly in Queensland and Aboriginal rights areas. She is currently a weapons campaigner with Rage Peace, the grassroots group which led the protests against Land Force 21. I asked Selda first how that campaign was organised. It was an initiative of an organisation called Wage Peace. So that was the kind of nucleus organising team was the, the three of us who worked for Wage Peace. That's myself and Margaret Pistorius and Kate Adams. So we sort of dreamt it up and right from, that was, I don't know, six, seven months ago, we decided that we wanted to have a very open organising structure. So we wanted to um, encourage different cohorts of people, so different constituencies, to self-organise and so that it would become a kind of decentralised autonomous coalition. And we were able to make that happen. And so that was beautiful. A great number of organisations and campaigners work with you. That was amazing. Yeah, look, one of the best things we did early on was to take advice from our friends in Aotearoa, from Peace Action Aotearoa. So we held a call with a number of activists over there about the work that they had done in opposing arms fairs in Aotearoa, which were ultimately successful. They stopped the arms fairs from happening, and that took them a few years. We listened to them at length and really learned a lot from that. So I guess the key things that I took away from that were, well, they talked about their organising strategies and that they also talked about their tactics so there was a lot of inspiration about different types of disruptive tactics that people could use. But in the early phases, the thing that was most inspiring was um, talking about their organising strategies. So I'll mention a couple of the things that I that I learned from them. Yeah, so one was that, you know, we know militarism is an issue that affects everybody. We know that it's an intersectional issue. I mean, like all the big issues, even the small issues, they're all intersectional issues. One of their um, people, Val, said, it's up to you to show different um, campaigners and different groups why your issue is relevant to them. So don't just campaign the way you usually campaign and expect that people will themselves identify how that campaign's relevant to them make that relevance apparent and do that from the get-go. So we, we, I really took that on board and I looked at kind of seven different areas in which militarism impacts us. So one of them was that war creates refugees, for instance. You know, refugees are only ever refugees because there's armed conflict going on in their homelands. So that was a, a focus of our like it wasn't an aside, that was a main kind of reason for for our activism. And then famine, which, you know, often refugees are fleeing famine, but famine is also caused by war. So we kind of grouped famine and refugees in the same, kind of, as the same kind of issue. And then um, the way militarism affects 
our environment and the responsibility for biodiversity loss and ecocide and the massive contribution that um, armies make to global warming was another whole area. So, you know, we were able to bring in um, Extinction Rebellion activists, school strikers and, and other kind of climate concerned people by connecting those issues. And I guess a really important one, well, they're all important to me. I can't say one's more important than another, but RISM is what dispossesses First Nations peoples. Um, it's what dispossessed First Nations peoples in Australia, and it continues to dispossess people here, and it um, continues to dispossess people in Amazonia, in Palestine, in Kurdistan, in, like, anywhere that in the Rohingya, anywhere in, in the world where First Nations peoples are protecting their country and their culture um, and extractivists want to get in there and extract, militarism is what is deployed to enable extractivism to take place. Yeah, then you've got kind of militarism plus extractivism plus species loss and extinction plus First Nations rights. You know, it's all wrapped in there together and war as the peak expression of toxic masculinity was another of my fave subjects. I was a peace activist in the 80s when a lot of feminism was focused on peace activism and we had sayings like take the toys from the boys and war is menstruation envy but you know war really is the peak expression of toxic masculinity and so I did a lot of writing about that and thinking about that and and women really responded to that. It makes sense to us, you know, and men. I mean, we hear that and we go, yeah, that's totally the worst type of of man that someone could be and we don't want men like that and we don't want our men to be like that and our men are not like that. And, we, and that violence against women and the violence against the earth is part of the same kind of toxic patriarchal rape and pillage culture. Uh, first they rape and pillage the humans and then they rape and pillage the earth. So sort of having a very broad conception of what militarism is and does and how it impacts us um, helped a whole lot of different people connect to the campaign and feel close to the campaign. And we did get a really strong response from First Nations peoples and refugees, feminists, climate activists, anti-mining activists. And that was really, really grateful to our Aotearoa colleagues for you know, making that point to me in a way that I maybe wouldn't have articulated otherwise. And a lot of work, Zelda, to keep this going for a whole week with all those disparate groups it was immense. But look, the other thing I'll, I'll touch on, Jan, that we got from the Aotearoa friends, well, we kind of developed this on our own, but they started it, they sparked it with the idea that if a group come along who want to protest in a way that's not a way that you choose to protest, you just make space for them and they do that and you don't have to do that with them. We developed that idea and our kind of organising ethic, I suppose, was really live and let live, was really, well, I called it radical respect. So the idea that 
another group might come and express themselves in protest in a way you really don't relate to. Maybe you don't even like it or you think it's wrong even. But we ask everybody to allow other people to express themselves in the ways that were meaningful to them without hindrance. You know, we had a, a kind of ground rule of no harm to other living beings, simple ground rules, no harm to other living beings and be respectful with each other. Aside from that, those ground rules, if somebody wants to pray or if somebody wants to be naked or if somebody wants to yell at the police, we ask that everyone else allow that to be okay with them. So that really opened space for people to work autonomously without the fear that another group was going to come and criticise them and that there was going to be a whole lot of argy-bargy about what's the right way to protest, which as veteran campaigners, Jan, you and I know that a lot of campaign energy gets sucked into this vortex of discussion about what is counterproductive and what is the right way to protest. And we really decided at the outset we want to throw that out and we want to try see it as an experiment you come with your group, you organise the way you want to organise, you express yourselves the way you want to express yourselves, and as long as you're not causing harm to other living beings, and as long as you're respecting other campaigners and activists, it's all good. And that really worked. Once the protest was up and running, we sort of organised actions for the first few days when Land Forces wasn't on, so our organising was mostly around those first few days of lighting the fire of solidarity, connecting First Nations peoples in Australia with Indigenous peoples in um, the highlands of West Papua. So like, we organised that one. We organised uh, a day of workshops and kind of games and trainings. We organised a couple of visits out to weapons factories. But we didn't organise any of the actions at Land Forces. We just opened the space provided the resources and invited people to come in and fill that space. And they did. They just filled it beautifully. By the middle of the first day, the key organisers were both in lockup and the whole thing was just unfolding and unravelling in this beautiful kind of orchestrated chaos that we really had nothing to do with. So that idea of having a decentralised kind of autonomous series of days of actions worked but it worked because people were able people felt supported to do that so there were resources for them and there was an understanding that they had the solidarity of the other people and that you didn't have to check in with 150 people is this action okay with everyone because you're always going to get someone saying no I don't think that's okay we, we took that off. We said, no, it's all okay as long as you're not harming other living beings. It's all okay. And I won't say there weren't times that were tense for people when somebody felt like, wow, you're holding a placard on the side of the road and I don't think that's an effective protest or you're swearing abuse at the, the war makers and I don't think that's a good way to protest. But of course, people felt those tensions, but people were able to hold those tensions and continue to give each other love and support through that difference. It was actually really, really beautiful to see everything unfold. And and I have to say, after seven days of 150 people 
eating together and acting together and connecting with each other that you really started to see what human beings are capable of when the shackles are taken off. We, we told everyone at the outset this is a DIY festival of resistance. If you think something needs doing, please do it. If you think something's not working, please help us fix it. And people really entered with that energy of, okay, what can we do? And felt empowered to do things. And the res I mean, what we had done was provide a foundation. So the resources were all there for people to do things with. It was easy to access the information. It was easy to access the tools, the equipment, the provisions that you might need to do things with. And people just came in and... DIY'd to the max and the the kind of connections that started to form in that community I mean just in seven days it kind of gave me a glimpse of the future that we would be able to make together that I have to say the word love again that by the by the sixth and the seventh day you walked into that hall which was our kind of base and people were beaming people were just filled with joy and here we are protesting at a weapons conference and people are being arrested and some people are being brutalized by the police and there's this horrible stuff going on in front of us and people were just filled with joy. It was the collective endeavor and the solidarity, I think, that was creating that, that sense of walking in and being supported and loved by 50 other people, half of whom you really don't know, it just gave you a sense that this future that we hold in our hearts, it's actually really close. If we take the shackles off and if we provide a solid foundation for that future to unfold, it is very close. So to talk a bit more about how the police reacted to this, because they're not used to people being so close together. They're Queensland police and um, they deployed the tactical... I can't remember the full name, the tactical control squad or something. So the nastiest kind of police. Look, they were fairly restrained most of the time. You know, some, some people did yell abuse at the police and it was quite heavy abuse. And like if I'd been in their shoes, I wouldn't have liked that at all. <laughs> um, and so most of them were quite restrained and professional, but there are a few who really weren't. And there was one young woman, blonde one, who oh, we found her name eventually, Samantha, I think, who really picked on the people of colour. She was really going after the people of colour, constantly trying to arrest people for no, like they were doing the same thing as everyone else. And she'd be right, you're under arrest. But that's where I saw the solidarity in, in action as well, because more often than not, we were able to protect those people. So we would just close in around the person. We would just form a human wall around the person so that the police couldn't get to them. And then with that kind of huddle, the person would be spirited away to a place. And, you know, I'd be there in, in front of the police person saying, oh, look, just leave it. Look, it's too hard. Let it go. Don't worry about it. It's all over. And more often than not, we were able to prevent a lot of those arbitrary arrests. There were a couple of really nasty arrests, and people may have seen one that was on the first day, I think the ABC News ran it, of a young person being really violently arrested, like several police officers piled on top of him, tore his clothes off, 
pinned him to the ground by his throat and of course they've charged him with assault police. We still don't know why they did that. Like he's mystified about he was doing the same thing as everyone else. So there were some erratic behaviours from the police like that. And when they arrested me, they were unnecessarily rough. Um, my handbag was strangling me because of the way they'd grabbed my arms and I was trying to get my handbag off my neck and they were seeing that as me resisting and being belligerent and they were pulling my arms up. I'm like, I'm being strangled. I just need to get my handbag off. I did manage to get it off, but um, it was, yeah, I shouldn't have had to struggle with the police to unstrangle myself. It was ridiculous. And a couple of our people, they kept in for days, um, which, you know, they're also not allowed to do. They have to bring you before a magistrate within 24 hours if you don't get bail conditions. Um, they failed to do that. So, uh, yeah, they did some asshole things for sure. There were Look, there were a couple of the police who were quite nice to me. Like, they were really quite kind of normal, I would say, normal human behaviour. And then there were others who were just like, why why are you being like this? Like, yeah, I don't understand. Toxic masculinity, I guess. Even the women have some of it. Lessons learnt. What are they? Um, well, I'm writing up a big document about the lessons learnt, Jan, and I'd love to share that with, we'll be sharing that with other campaigners very soon. So we'll be running an online forum where we'll invite other campaigners and activists who um, like to hear what we think we've learned. We're going to have a forum, internal forum first, to um, bring together our insights. I think I've probably already gone over the main two lessons that I learned. One is that well, all issues are intersectional and it's up to us to show that they're intersectional or how they're intersectional and that intersectionality, it is what makes the issue rounded and makes the campaign solid and having, I mean, I guess one of our organising principles was frontline affected voices to the front. We asked people who'd been, you know, personally directly impacted by war and by militarism to bring their voices to the front, and people did do that. And they did that with a grounding of, of solidarity from everyone else who was there. Yeah, I, I guess rather than trying to define what we're not, who we are, who we want to be, was really helpful. Like we, we really, in all our messaging, stressed that we're united as fuck. Touch one, touch all. We, we kind of really pushed the solidarity message and people responded to that with awesome solidarity, just amazing solidarity that I don't think I've experienced well, for a long time in that way. And for it to grow so quickly was incredible. And the other one was the radical, the idea of radical respect, the idea of respecting other people and supporting other people, even and especially when you don't like the way they're expressing themselves or you don't understand, you don't relate to the way they're expressing themselves. But to allow that to happen and to still offer them your respect is a radical act. And that really worked. Through that whole campaign, I didn't hear anybody saying, oh, that's the wrong way to protest or that thing they did is counterproductive or, you know, that's the wrong way to do it. People were just very open and that leaves space for people to be creative 
then when people are not nervous that someone else is going to say this is wrong, it really opens the space for people to try things out. I guess one more lesson is to see it as an experiment. You know, it's not the protest, it's not the only protest or the one that's going to decide everything for all time. It is a social experiment, a social and political experiment in liberation and let's see, let's see how far we can take it. Let's see how many different things we can try. Lone Forces 2021. Did you have any interaction at all with them? Oh, lots, lots. So a lot of us went inside. You could register to go inside and, and people did and some people, like someone climbed on top of a tank and recited a prayer, someone else threw red paint on a tank and then there was the episode where 20 people ran in and jumped on top of a Rhein-Metall tank and called out, this tank is used against the people of West Papua, uh, which message got out to 1.5 million people around the world. So that was pretty gratifying. But yes, we did have contact with, well, certainly with security personnel. And we were constantly engaging with the people who were exhibiting in there. So they had to do the walk of shame past a whole lot of us to get in. So there was a constant engagement there. But our attempts at kind of formal communication with the land forces people were ignored. They weren't interested in our objections. Where to from here? Well, we're still doing wrap-up and evaluation, Jan. So we had a bit of a rest. Now we're doing a wrap video and um, we'll be holding... Yeah, an internal consultation and then we'll be holding um, an open online forum for anyone who wants to hear. Like we're going to basically offer what the Aotearoa people offered to us, which is here's what we think we've learned. And then the next step will be to do a consultation about what next. Where should we take this wonderful spirit next? Avalon's coming up in November. There's a naval expo in Sydney in May. I mean, it's hard to organise anything in COVID times. Who knows when or if people will be able to travel. We lost our Melbourne people at the last minute in land forces. I only just managed to get up, but, you know, we were down about 20 people because the Nam people weren't able to travel. But we still had enough people. So where to next is something we want to decide in consultation with the people who want to consult on it, whoever wants to kind of got the energy to take it forward. But yes, arms fairs look out. You are no longer safe in Australia. And yeah, I certainly want to experience that energy again, Jan. So we will definitely be taking it somewhere soon. Well, just finally, Zelda, it sounds to me like congratulations all round. Yeah, people were just brilliant. Like I said, people, you know, you sort of take the shackles off and say, okay, do anything, try anything, be creative, be bold, here's some resources, do whatever you think feels meaningful to you. And people just went wild. It was just beautiful. And we're really loving with each other, which was even more beautiful. Thanks, Zelda. All right, Dan. And it was great to talk to Zelda after so many years and hopefully we'll be speaking to her again on the program. Zelda Grimshaw.
independent and peaceful Australian network, IPAN, has launched a national people's inquiry into the costs and consequences of Australia's involvement in the US-led wars, the US alliance and its alternatives. The inquiry aims to promote a national conversation and is currently inviting submissions from organisations and individuals. The great majority of Australians have never been asked about this alliance, its implications and its limitations, which has led to an uncritical foreign policy. It's time this changed. To make a submission, go to independentpeacefulaustralia.com.au. That's independentpeacefulaustralia.com.au. Submissions close on the 31st of July. IPAN is a 3CR supporter. Get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at this station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20. The media in this country, we as Indigenous people know, have censored our right of telling the truth and the truth is what this country is most fearful of, in particular Indigenous truths. Until history is told by the vanquished lens, which is our people telling our story our way, and have the right to be able to incorporate that into a system of learning, well, people are always going to be denied that truth by deceit and lies. When you look at the type of psychological warfare, spiritual warfare that Aboriginal people are caught in, it's not just in the sense of military when they talk about weapons of mass destruction, but you're right, it's in terms of the media and the industry of media as a warfare against our people, and so is religion, I believe, in the Western sense. They're all weapons of mass destruction against our, our people. We need to keep radical voices on air Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. At the end of May, a newspaper headline read Democracy on Life Support in Malaysia with Growing Dissent about the handling of the virus and the creeping authoritarianism of the Prime Minister's government. I spoke yesterday with Lee Tan, activist here in Melbourne, originally from Malaysia, whose family still live in Malaysia, to find out if there have been any improvements in both of these areas since the end of May. Lee, I read a report in late May, Malaysia on Life Support, talking about serious COVID infections and creeping authoritarianism. First, the COVID crisis, has it improved? With regards to COVID, it's really a crisis now with um, several hospitals unable to cope and putting, you know, infected cases in very dangerous situations where doctors 
have to decide, you know, who gets treatment um, or, or, you know, who gets admitted to the ICU and uh, who gets the ventilator. And that's really appalling for a country that's relatively affluent, like Malaysia. Yeah, and that and people are put in kind of haphazard lockdown. Citizens' movement's been very severely curtailed, while big departmental stores, factories, including liners, of course, are, about, uh, are allowed to operate you know, at uh, 50% or 60% capacity, which is ridiculous. I mean, which means that yeah, that's actually one of the reasons why COVID infection is continuing to rise. And also now they're getting the Delta variant, which, as we know in Australia, is highly infectious. And still, you know, the movement control order or equivalent to our lockdown hasn't actually changed. They've just kind of decided, you know, which residential area has more cases and then they put up barbed wires and get the army in, you know, to seal it off without actually looking at the cause of infection let alone tracing. The whole contact tracing in Malaysia has gone out of control. And meanwhile, ministers and senior public officers are allowed to travel overseas, you know, to visit their parents. Yeah, so there's that kind of inequitable lockdown order or what they call SOP, um, yeah, basically standard uh, operating procedure that's kind of haphazardly enforced, pretty much similar to what how Malaysia has been run anyway, with corruption and and uh, yeah, with uh, politicians getting power which they abuse. And then that's the next is the vaccination program. Again, you know, it's similarly uh, controversial. The vaccine rollout has kind of not been effective even though the government's committed a lot of funds into ordering all, all sorts of vaccines from the Chinese, Sinovac to the most expensive uh, U.S., Pfizer. Yeah, there have been some vaccination happening at the above 60 age group, but um, not all of them have been vaccinated for all sorts of reasons. And then the below 60 uh, are kind of uh, left unvaccinated, which is a problem, especially with the Delta uh, variant that is uh, spreading very quickly. So, as last count, yesterday, if the data is reliable, there were over 9,000 cases of um, infection, infected cases in Malaysia. Of course, you know, the more densely populated states are doing worse than the less populated states. So, yeah, in terms of COVID, it is a crisis, but on top of that, there is a political crisis, and it has been since the beginning of uh, the COVID-19 uh, being declared as a pan- pandemic by the WHO uh, last March. As listener might recall, there was a uh, palace coup, so-called, when uh, the current ruling government Topper the elected, popularly elected PH or Pakatan Harapan or the Coalition of Hope government through going to the king 
yeah, to instate itself as the government. Merely through member parliaments, jumping party, to form the new coalition called Pakatan National, which is a failed government so far. And that's instability since then, politically. And then they declare um, a state of emergency, and parliament hasn't sat since then. So public funds being abused without any um, scrutiny by parliamentarians, let alone citizens. So that's the state of affairs in Malaysia right at the moment. What does the state of emergency mean for the ordinary people? Well, it just means that there are freedom of movement, freedom of speech, and also, you know, freedom to carry out any bigger plan are totally curtailed, and they they could not uh, go through their elected members of parliament to uh, voice out their grievances and complaints against ineffectiveness in any of the state policy or practice. Yeah, and I mean, there's a lot of frustration because of the emergency. I mean, Malaysians are constantly reminded of the emergency ordinance which ruled the country during the previous emergency period in the 50s and 60s against so-called communist insurgency. And they associated that with violence, with military power and, uh, uh, and force. Yeah, although this is a COVID emergency, they fear that the authority will abuse their power and which they they have, you know, from time to time. Yes, so citizens are basically living in fear and uncertainty and in anxiety, not knowing what's going to happen next, beyond seeing the obvious, uh, which is, you know, high COVID infection, yeah, being locked down at home. I mean, the lockdown in Malaysia is not like the lockdown in Melbourne because they're not even allowed to get out of the house to exercise beyond going to, you know, the doctor or to the shop once a day and only one person can go shopping. And, um, yeah, I think they allow one hour or something for exercise within two kilometers or just within their surroundings. So it's a pretty tough situation. Can you give the example of your family in Kwantan, how they're getting on? My families are kind of, you know, comfortable and lucky. I mean, one of my, my, my elder sister, I think, yeah, she hasn't been vaccinated because her daughter is worried that she may develop complication given her health situation. They kind of, yeah, at least they're living together. Usually her daughters are living in Hong Kong. Her husband works in China. But luckily, because of COVID, they were kind of reunited under the same roof. And they have another house in Klang, but Klang is one of the hot spots. So they left Klang to go to Kwantan because Kwantan is um, basically safer when it, insofar as COVID was concerned uh, last year. But right now, Kwantan's actually having rising cases as well. Yeah, so that's fine. And other members of the family, some have been vaccinated, others haven't. Uh, of course, business has been affected. Uh, one of my brother has a small kind of, you know, has a medium scale business, 
he he's more worried about customer turning up not wearing a mask, and it was difficult for him, he say, to convince customer to at least you know take precaution by wearing a mask. Many of them actually do not believe that COVID nineteen is that deadly, which is quite worrying, and that's in the royal area of Pekan. That's where the palace is, and it goes to show. That's the failure of the government in educating ordinary people. So yeah, in so far as he's concerned, you know, he can deal with the losses in business, but he is more worried about getting contracting COVID. Although he's um he's uh, already vaccinated with one dose so far, yeah. So yeah, and I know other people are living t- tough. They've been food bank set up by. You know, concerned people, and there's been donation drive by different NGOs. Yeah, so that that's good to see that the communities are trying to do something together, but that's really limited given the scale of the problem. And then that the indigenous community or the First Nation communities, they do not have any healthcare services in remote places. Yeah, so some of them are implementing cells. Barricade, you know, by blocking people, even their own residents who worked in the in the city, to return for fear that they may carry the COVID uh, infection back, and which has happened. So that's actually a a valid kind of measure. So many of the COVID precautions and um, protective measures been basically created by people themselves using whatever means and resources they have, which is not a good situation, of course. Lutan, last time we talked about Malaysia Kini, they had a very big fine over, yes. the, over comments by subscribers, I believe, that now the, yes. fed, now the federal court has ordered the online publisher to pay a large amount to... Rab Australia. Mm. Who are Rab yep. Australia and why? That's a gold mine um, in a small town in Pahang. That mine has been, it's got nothing to do with Australia, although they use the name uh, Australia in it. I don't know for what reason. Maybe it was once owned by an Australian company. I think, yeah, there was another um, Australian gold mining company in the area. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yep, that case is peculiar because earlier last year, the court has actually dismissed a defamation case against uh, residents for bringing up their concern in public interest. And Mar- Malaysia Kini merely reported on that. And for that, they got taken to court for defamation by the company and also I think by maybe some government official as well, or the court or something, a prosecutor. And they got fined 350,000 Malaysian, which is equivalent to about hundred, about 110,000 Australian. And that's a hefty fine, you know, for a media outlet, as Tracy I would know. And also in this economic hard time in Malaysia, Malaysia Kini could not seek public support, you know, through a donation drive. Fortunately, Malaysia Kini had raised some funds for this case. 
before, and they say they would use that fund to pay for it. Uh, and also, interestingly, this case, I mean, the, the majority, the judges, it's, it's a five judges panel, three judges were voting for the judgment, and two voted against citing that Malaysia Kini had sufficient evidence to show that it has no intention and that its news article was not defamatory because, you know, it has substantiated what it has written and also it's um, done in public interest. But obviously, you know, there are probably judges in Malaysia who are keen to punish Malaysia Kini because it is the only independent news reporter daring to cover very controversial news about mining, about pollution, about the role of the king or his family, you know, dabbling in investments that are controversial, including the Linus radioactive waste dump. And and also I guess, you know, they are they have seen how Malaysia Kini's got so much support from the public that they could raise 270,000 Malaysian ringgit, that's about about 800 or 900, uh, 90,000 Australian, you know, within just a few hours. Probably it's, it's more to show that, you know, the court has the upper hand on uh, freedom of speech in Malaysia and also to scare Malaysia Kini into submission, uh, not to cover controversial issues regarding mining or royalty or whatever. I mean, of course, that's the signal that we suspect what this uh, judgment may be about. And of course, Safe Malaysia Stop Linus, the residence group in Kuantan that has uh, campaigning against the Linus Rails project, rather concerned because their case is up for judgment later this month on the 27th of July. And they worry that this decision may well, you know, give an indication that they will lose the case and that they will be compelled to pay penalty or cost awarded by the court to uh, their plaintiff. And that can amount to quite a, ha- a hefty sum. Who is the plaintiff? The cabinet under the Mahathir Coalition of Hope government and Linus. So, you know, they can't, they could claim huge amount of court costs. Why? What is the case? What is the Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. But it's a judicial review case against the cabinet uh, under Mahathir for undermining the decision of the environment minister uh, on Linus by allowing Linus to continue to operate without fulfilling its license condition. And, um, yeah, so that's basically what the case is about. Who is representing the group? Several residents in Kuantan, Mr Tan and three other residents from Kuantan. Yeah, a group of lawyers, including um, the advocate, uh, a very senior and well-respected advocate by the name of Sri Ram. He used to be the top public prosecutor. And he was also instrumental in bringing uh, the case against Najib uh, for the one MDB scandal to the court. You know, he knows his stuff. But, you know, when decisions are left to judges, even the best advocate could not uh, necessarily defend the case at times. 
yeah, in a system like that in Malaysia. What's Linus up to at the moment? Well, Linus has actually submitted a proposal to build a cracking and separation plant in uh, Kalgoorlie in uh, Western Australia. It has kind of fast-tracked the radioactive waste management plan without subjecting it to public consultation. And recently, it has, uh, back in June, it has uh, released the EIA, the Environmental Impact Assessment, for four weeks of public consultation. Yeah, and AWATCH is uh, putting in a submission. There are lots of loopholes in there. It seems that the WA government is uh, keen to fast-track the approver for Linus to set up its plan in Kalgoorlie in time uh, for the 2023 banning of importation of radioactive material into Malaysia. What's the feeling in Kalgoorlie? Well, I know there are some residents who are really shocked and concerned. Not many people knew about it, which is a problem. A project like that should be highly publicized and you know, they should have been public meetings with independent experts giving their views on it, you know, for transparency. But of course, that hasn't happened. Yeah, and, and the consultation period is relatively short. Yeah, most of the environmental NGOs are so tied up with other cases of mining problems, they have no capacity to comment on it. So, you know, we might see another uh, a radioactive legacy being left in Kalgoorlie. Uh, who knows? All right, Lee. Well, I'll catch up with you at the end of the month to find out what happened with the, the court case. Sure. Sure. Yep. Thank okay, you. no problem. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Solidarity Breakfast, your Saturday morning serving of union and working news, current events, opinion and talkback. Every Saturday, 7.30 till 9am, here on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. armed states are talking big and spending up with no intention to disarm. The Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons provides a pathway out of this mess, and it's up to us to get our government on board. Tune in to ICANN's Band School to learn more and be part of history in the making. It's five online sessions from June to September. Check it out and enrol at icanw.org.au forward slash bandschool. That's icanw.org.au forward slash bandschool. The international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons is a 3CR supporter. And to part two of the webinar presented by UTS Centre for Social Justice and Inclusion.
titled Palestine and the Media. The coordinator is Verity Firth and the three speakers, Samar Sabawi, Antin Lowenstein and Professor Sabah Pibawi. Look, the question of advocacy or activism is something that's come up a lot in my life because often I'm accused on this issue of being both and I guess I refute that. Let me just briefly explain why. This is generally raised by people who are either blindly pro-Israel, who don't like the fact that there is someone who is more critical or sceptical of Israeli claims, Israeli actions. I'm Jewish myself, although I'm, I don't think my Judaism, I mean, I'm, I don't really practice my religion. I'm not religious. I don't think that really informs my reporting, except for the fact that I know that Israel claims to be acting on behalf of me. In other words, Israel explicitly says, as a Jewish state, that our role is to act in your interests and to protect you. Now, my view is they're doing the exact wrong thing and the opposite of that, but that's how they claim to be. And many Jews in the diaspora, including in Australia, will argue that. And when I was growing up, I used to hear that, that my family, many of whom were killed in the Holocaust, would say my family wasn't you know, madly pro-Israel, but the argument was always said, God forbid something happened, there was always somewhere to go to protect us. On the one hand, I understand that logic. I mean, considering the 20th century, that makes sense, except for the fact that it's on the back of another people, the Palestinians, which is why it's, in my view, completely unacceptable. So when I'm reporting on Israel-Palestine, you have to not view this issue as, as I said before, two equal sides. You have to be sceptical and critical of all claims. I don't think one should be a blind advocate for any one particular side. On the other hand, if anyone spends any time in Gaza, in the West Bank, in East Jerusalem, where I was based for four years and have been going there for 15, a blind man can see what's happening there. As Samar was saying before, yes, some parts are complicated, yes. Like any conflict, things are not necessarily just black and white. But ultimately, this has been a conflict, a war, a ongoing level of daily violence. One of the problems with reporting is too often, even the last two weeks, the New York Times can put headlines saying, after a period of calm, violence flares up. What does that mean? Peace for whom? I mean, yes, for a lot of Israeli Jews, life's been relatively okay. There has been no real violence, and that's great for them. But if you're in the West Bank or Gaza, every day there's violence in a different way. There's literally virtually every day a Palestinian civilian being killed in the West Bank, almost every day by Israeli forces or Israeli troops, almost every day. That's violence, and it's obvious to say that. So if advocacy or activism is saying that and reporting that, which is simply fact, then yes, one can be accused of activism. But I don't think reporting accurately what's going on as a human being. I mean, to me, the problem I often find is that too many people who are invested in this conflict, Jews particularly, put their religion first and their human being cap second. In other words, they are seeing it through a very tribal lens. And that, to me, is unhealthy. I mean, we all have tribal views. I mean, I'm not saying that you know, we can all necessarily escape that. But this is a very quick example, and I'll finish on this point. It is unimaginable that you would have the equivalent on the Palestinian side of what the New York Times has done in the last 20 years. Almost every correspondent there, bureau chief in Jerusalem, has either had a child who's in the IDF or has had a partner or someone close to them who works for advocacy for the Israeli government as their job. It's not a conspiracy theory, it's just a fact, and people can Google that if they don't believe me. Now, can you imagine the equivalent on the other side? 
I mean, can you even imagine it? The idea that you would have, for example, Palestinian journalist X working in Jerusalem and her husband was a, you know, was a part-time fighter for Hamas, for example. Can you imagine? It would never happen. And I'm not saying it, sh it shouldn't happen on either side, to be honest, as a reporter. My point being that that sort of reality for the New York Times is uncontroversial. It's just normal. That's just a normal part of journalism. How is that not activism? How is that not advocacy for one side? And the reporting often has reflected that. The New York Times got a little bit better during the recent conflict, which we can just discuss later if you want, here and there. But those are the sort of organisations that frame so much the reporting for the Western audiences, particularly in the US and the Western world. And I think when those organisations start to shift their coverage, which to some extent I think they're slowly doing, that's when you realise many people in the very blind pro-Israel community are worried that they're losing the information war. Ultimately, this is not really a violent conflict, it's an information war. And there's no doubt to me that Israel in the last five or ten years is increasingly losing it. Ashley, I'm going to stick with you because... Last year, you wrote an essay where you said that Australia is almost unique globally in its consistent support for Israel in diplomatic forums like the United Nations. And it's interesting what you were just saying then, too, about the information war. What is the reason that Australia has had that approach? And how does it affect Australian media, media coverage of these issues? Let me briefly explain this, because you could write a book about it, as many people have. I think the reason Australia, and this is generally quite bipartisan, by the way, this is not particularly more on the Liberal Party. I think when Labor has been in power in the last 30 or 40 years, there have been slightly more shifts. Whitlam was a bit more sceptical of Israel. There were times during the Kevin Rudd era where he was a bit more sceptical. So there are differences. I'm not saying they're exactly the same. But in general, there is virtually bipartisan support for Israel. Why? I think a few reasons. One, I think there is still in many Western countries, including here, an ingrained sympathy or guilt because of the Holocaust. I think that actually still plays quite a large part. I'm not saying that's explicit, but the sense that essentially the world didn't stop the, you know, the Nazi Holocaust, and therefore we in the West have a responsibility and duty to support Jews to form and build a stable homeland. That's one reason. Two, I think 9-11 has been a wonderful gift for Israel. And what I mean by that is just after 9-11, Netanyahu, who was then not Prime Minister but a political leader in Israel, was on the media essentially saying that, and I'm paraphrasing here, that now he argues most of the West will understand what we have been going through for decades. Namely that we in Israel have been fighting a war on terror against Muslims, against terrorists, and now you in the West, you get it. Welcome to our reality. And I think many people in the West shared that view. They still share that view that Israel is almost on the front line, so the narrative goes, of fighting this war against terrorism. And in fact, often Israel explicitly says to Europe, we are fighting a war so you don't have to. In other words, we're doing those kind of battles against terrorists and all these extremists. And I think finally, there's a question of, for the last about 20 years, very leading Israel lobby groups here in Australia have been sending politicians and journalists on free trips to Israel. And these trips, I think, on one level, have been very successful. They are essentially a week or 10 days of propaganda. You are being shown a very narrow slice of reality. And again, Labor's taken it, liberal politicians have taken it, a lot of journalists have taken it, not so many from the ABC, but current head of SBS three years ago went on a lobby trip and came back raving about how great Israel is. Now, that, to me, is inherently deeply problematic. 
And it's almost strikes to me as if you are going to take those trips, which I don't think one should, even if you do, the idea that most of these people wouldn't even say, hmm, maybe I'll spend one more day in the West Bank. It just doesn't enter their minds. And you know the impact of these trips because when they come back, they talk about it. It impacts their coverage. All these reasons, and just finally, when there's a UN vote on pretty much anything to do with Israel in the last years, particularly since the Morrison government, but it was similar under Turnbull as well, you have pretty much the entire world on one side. And the other side is Israel, the US, a few Pacific islands, Micronesia, Palau, and Australia. Now, those small states, I kind of get in a way why they support it because they're client states and they need the cash. I kind of understand that, fair enough, in a way. What's our excuse? It's not because we need the money. We don't. So I think it's partly ideological and also philosophical. And also, just finally, finally, Australia frames the support for Israel as so-called shared values. It's said all the time, as does Biden, as does many Western leaders. What does that mean? Shared values in what way? They frame it around democracy, human rights, one person, one vote, all that sort of stuff. But the fact is, shared values essentially mean that Australia and many Western states not just overlook the occupation, but support it, back it, defend it, arm it. As a settler colonial country as we are, and as Israel is, and in fact, many Western states are, I think there's also that affinity between all these states that they see almost a kindred spirit. It's not that I want to add, I just want to highlight the last point that uh, Anthony um, spoke of, and, and I take all his points on board. Uh, but the, the last point I think is really important for us uh, in order to, to really, we really need to make that connection that, that uh, Australia is a settler colonialist country that has that history. Um, they have a history of terror analysis. They have a history of erasing the indigenous population, and they have an ongoing history of erasing of the voices of their indigenous population, of not seeing them really entirely within colonialist institutions. And the media, I think, is a, a settler colonialist remnant institution uh, that needs to be changed. There is that link and there is that understanding and that nod, that nudge that, yeah, we know where you're coming from uh, when it comes to Israel being a settler colonialist project itself and denying uh, the people uh, their rights and uh, denying the indigenous population their rights. And, you know, the Terra Nellis, land without a people, uh, there's a lot of similarities there. And it's really funny because although they do give a nudge to one another, they hate it when we make this connection. And so it's just another one of the hypocrisies, I guess, of, of uh, our government over here. But I just wanted to highlight that. I mean, that's a truth that we haven't even really properly explored ourselves yet, you know. No. Samar, there was an open letter, which most people I think have heard about now, calling on the media to, quote, do better on Palestine. It's been signed by more than 720 journalists, media workers, writers and commentators since May 14. It states, quote, as journalists, reporters and other media workers, we know that the media can do better. Many of us are seeking change but lack sufficient power in our organisations to push back against the status quo. Some signatories have been pressured to remove their names from that open letter by their employers. And what do you think that shows about the heat on journalists who speak up or are covering stories about Palestine and Israel? There is no doubt there is a lot of heat on the journalists. They're not able to, to perform 
um, their duties in the way that they would like to perform them. But I think, too, that there's also self-censorship that goes on in these institutions. So there's also the fear that if they were to report things as they are, that they would get in trouble for it. And I'll never forget, I was on in an ABC radio studio with a, an ABC reporter who, uh, I can't give the name, but off record, it was during the bombing, uh, the, the, the 51 days of bombing of Gaza in 2014. He almost begged me not to bring up Gaza in my interview that I was doing at the time because he just doesn't want to go there. He weeps for Palestine. He weeps for the Palestinians, but he was afraid to lose his job. Now, that was just not an isolated incident. I've heard that from so many reporters who have told me that they would like to speak out, but they're afraid that they would lose their job. Um, and so, you know, there is there is a fear within these institutions, but there's also self-censorship that goes on. And there's also this incredible, I had this incident at the ABC, which until this day, I, I cannot fathom how it could happen within the ABC. I had submitted uh, an opinion piece on the annexation of uh, Jerusalem uh, back in July of last year to uh, the ABC's uh, ethics and religion and ethics. Very quickly, uh, They started questioning some of the words that I was using, like annexation and occupation. I can't remember now. But within a week, when the piece was finally published, it appeared alongside an attack piece. And very quickly, it became clear to me that um, my op-ed was passed on to the Zionist Federation of Australia without my consent by the ABC's Religion and Ethics. And some of the feedback that was given on my op-ed appeared in that opinion piece by the Zionist Federation. So it looked like they'd actually written the feedback that I was receiving supposedly from the the editors of the ABC. The amazing thing, that the astonishing thing was not that this happened. The astonishing thing was that when I complained, the response was, you're lucky, you know, you should be happy that uh, we're on your side and we gave you the platform to speak. They'd controlled the platform so much to the point that they've appeased that other uh, group. And so, yes, the fear exists. Self-censorship exists. No one knows that better than Palestinians. Ask any Palestinian writer in Australia, and they will tell you harrowing stories about them trying to, to write opinion pieces and being shut down or having words changed or having things watered down or just not to- totally being ignored. And so we know that this is happening, and we know that the fear is there. And I and I just want to take the opportunity to really give a shout out to the courageous journalists and writers who did sign that letter, because we cannot make change happen without courage, and we need courage. We need courage, we need integrity, and we need to bring back the idea of ethical reporting, if it ever existed, into, into the Palestine-Israel story. Saba. In Gaza and in the occupied Palestine territories, the press has been targeted by Israeli forces, including the arrests of journalists in Sheikh Jarrah and the bombing of the Al Jazeera and associated press offices in Gaza. Can you talk to us a little bit about this and what are the impacts on the ground of these actions? Look, this has always been the case during times of war. Uh, Myself working as a journalist in the Middle East, We worked for state media, and that was always considered part of the military because the first thing that happens in conflict or wars or coups is that the media studios are taken over by the military with a gun to your head as a journalist in front of the microphone, 
and you're silenced or dictated. And that is because the media is a tool of war. This is, generally speaking, usually the first thing that happens in war. And in the recent conflict in Gaza, this is what happened. They bombed the building uh, of Al Jazeera and Associated Press offices. That was in an attempt to silence them. And usually, by the way, when you see that happen, it means that there's something large that's just about to happen that they don't want you to know about and they don't want journalists. So there's always, when, when there's a plan for more destruction, the media are out and you can't report on it. Now, what is particularly interesting these times is that that's, I would like to talk about social media because social media here really plays a role. And it has so uh, recently as we witnessed during the Arab Spring. So people have phones, people have cameras, people have videos. They can edit on the go. They know how to put things out there. Personally, I have not been getting my understanding and news, although I work in journalism, uh, is that I've been getting it from social media. And that's how I've been understanding what's been going on. Now, the problem with social media, especially with Facebook, is that it's quite limited as to who you have followed or who you like. But there's a lot going on there that we are actually more informed than before. So I think that's, uh, I mean, I can talk a little bit more about social media, but I'll leave it there for now. But, but it's important to note that it's not just, they can silence the mainstream media. And as we've noticed, the mainstream media has actually They've silenced themselves. I think it's social media that really has people reporting on the ground um, that I think we don't need to talk a lot about that because we understand fully what that means. But that has to be taken into account. And we'll stick on social media because your points go completely into a question that I was going to give to Sarah Salah had she um, been able to join us where she recently did a video for Get Up, where she talked about exactly that. In the face of military tanks and army boots, Palestinians are fighting back with literally the only weapon they have, their phone. So let's now talk about the role of social media in both the reporting of what's just recently happened, but also in this, as we've all alluded to earlier, this seeming shift of public opinion in terms of this issue. So, Saba, why don't you elaborate? Because you were on a good roll there. Okay. And then I'll come to you, Anthony. Okay. So, there are a few things. Um, there's two points, actually, I'll bring up. Uh, the first thing is, uh, I'll bring in an example of the positives of social media and an example of the negatives. So, the positive is people circulate things. You become more informed, as we said. And I think it has been very successful. Uh, Arab journalists use it. Comedy has played a particular excellent role here. Uh, for example, what went uh, viral was the trending, and trending was John Oliver's calling out Israel clip, uh, and also on the bombing of Al Jazeera and the AP offices in Gaza, making comments like, oh, it was really nice of the IDF to send a courtesy note to the Palestinians just, you know, half an hour before letting them know that their houses are going to be bombed. That's really nice of them. Other, you know, jokes that he made was the memes that the IDF used in social media themselves, which is with the before and the after. So this is what the building looked like before and looked, up, looked like after. It's interesting that all always, you know, there's been a really interesting use of the military or the governments themselves of social media. 
that that I think has played a role because it, it I think it has more impact. Comedy is very powerful, and I think it's a very effective way of conveying the message. Negatively, though, as I said, it is quite limited. It's a bubble. So I have many Jewish friends in Australia. Uh, some of them are more pro-Israel, some of them more pro-Palestinian. But I had one particular friend who is pro-Israeli, uh, and she's a very good friend. And it was interesting that her social media feed was drastically different from mine. She didn't unfriend me, but she did make a comment that came later on that said, oh, my God, the reality on my Facebook feed is very different from the reality of others. There is a limitation here. And this, again, it talks to what media organization do you follow or what newspaper do you read or, you know, you choose. Now, we do not have that kind of holistic, skeptical audience which will read everything. You're not going to see me getting news on the conflict from Fox News. You're not going to see me do that. I don't have enough time in my life. But, you know, the, 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 the issue is that social media is still very limited. However, a point that Samah made very early on is that it does give a voice. There is no gatekeeping. It gives a voice. So people, yes, have the phone and they edit and it's there immediately posted for people to see. Yeah, I think that's so true. And you really saw that bubble happening in US politics in the final days of Trump as well, just that complete disconnect between Absolutely. what narratives people were hearing. Anthony, social media, do you think it's had an influence on the way this is covered either in the mainstream press or in public opinion more broadly? I think there's no doubt that social media has hugely assisted Palestinians in getting their message out. So I won't add much more to that side because both women have said great things about that. What I would say, though ties into my point about the information war before, because Israel's well aware of this problem. They view it as a problem. And the way that they're dealing with it is, to some degree, successful, and other degrees less so. Well before the recent upsurge in violence, they've been doing a lot of lobbying, pressuring on Facebook, Twitter, and other platforms to censor or deplatform certain individuals, certain people who are claimed to be terrorists or terrorist supporters, but actually are not. They are simply... Palestinian voices, even during the recent upsurge in violence, a lot of Palestinian accounts, some had disappeared, certain hashtags disappeared. There's, I think, a growing realisation again about the disparity of influence here, that um, even during the recent conflict, Mark Zuckerberg literally ordered Nick Clegg, who is Facebook's kind of PR hack, to fly to Israel to meet officials from both the Israeli and political side to somehow work out Something. I mean, there was images I remember seeing of Israeli officials meeting with Facebook officials on Zoom during the war, during the recent war, to demand that more Palestinian accounts were pulled down. And this is really, I would argue, just the beginning of this war. So it doesn't involve guns. It doesn't involve any violence in a literal sense. But actually, it, it reflects increasingly how Israel is petrified that they're less able to control the narrative. As Samar rightly said, for decades, Israel pretty much had the floor to themselves. I'm generalising, but in general they did. And that was reflected in public opinion and the political elites and much of the media. That is now shifting to an extent. And social media, of course, is other places in which a lot of us get our information, for better or worse. 
you do find, and there's been a lot of articles in the last while of many staff members of these social media companies sort of demanding that they're often, I think, when posts are being taken down, it's not necessarily person X in California doing it, though sometimes, of course, that happens. It's the way the algorithms are designed. Like one very quick example, and I'll finish. There was a lot of posts being pulled down around Al-Aqsa, which is the holy mosque in Jerusalem, the third holiest um, mosque in Islam, site in Islam. And a lot of Palestinians were posting about it, and the post disappeared. And no one could really quite understand why that was happening, apart from maybe the obvious, which was Israel didn't want them up there. It emerged, apparently, that um, for a lot of social media companies, they confused Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade, which is a designated terrorist organization with actually Al-Aqsa itself. So all these posts were taken down. Now, that's the more generous reading of what happened. That, that, I mean, that may well have been the case. I don't know. My point in saying that is there is so little cultural understanding within these organizations around the world that is non-Western A and B, the huge amount of pressure that Israeli officials have had on these companies to some extent has been quite successful. Now, how that's going to work going forward, I'm not entirely sure, but I do think that a lot of Palestinians are increasingly aware of the fact that if they solely rely on these social media platforms to get their word out, it's dangerous. In other words, your account can be pulled down tomorrow. You might have a million followers and you know that, that you're done. Now, what the alternative to that is, I guess, is you know, other social media platforms finding alternative ways of getting the message out. But I think there is a, you will see in the coming months and years, a huge pushed by Israel to massively pressure these companies to be far more aggressive in pulling down posts that they regard or they claim should not be there. So, Samar, I can see you're chomping at the bit. I'm, I'm going to come to you now to talk about social media, but then I'm very mindful of the time and I want to quickly move to audience questions so we don't complete. I'll be very, very quick. Samar. Look, social media evolves, and I think they can close platforms, new ones will appear. And what took us by complete surprise in this last Gaza war was TikTok, uh, the new social media platform. And suddenly the the pundits on, on Palestinian TV were calling it the TikTok Intifada, which we were very upset about because we thought we were liberating Palestine, not these young guys on TikTok. But it was very, very effective is, is the point. And just very quickly um, on social media, is it, the Israeli spokesperson came out, and I can't remember um, his name, uh, but he referred to the Palestinian narrative on social media as being a well-oiled propaganda machine. Goes again to explain how little they really seem to understand what is going on because there's just no oil involved whatsoever except maybe olive oil. But what drove the media was actually, what drove the social media post was actually empathy for the Palestinians and and this attraction to the stories, people are attracted to stories of heroism. So when you have a story about a family in Sheikh Jarrah who are being evicted by a settler who says to them on a phone to the world to say, if, you, if I don't steal your house, somebody else will. That's really simple language that's going to reach the entire world. And people can understand this guy is taking over these people's home and he's stealing it. And he says, if he doesn't, somebody else will. Uh, and so that's powerful. And I think it, I think it's it's the power of the stories that are being carried on social media. I'm not afraid that the spaces will shut down. I have a lot of faith in the n- new generation. There's always going to be something. The story is out. Israel needs to come to reckoning with it. And Israel needs to start to understand that it can no longer control Palestinian narrative. And I, I do believe that we are at a watershed moment in that regard. 
And the last speaker in that webinar, Palestine and the Media, was Samar Sabawi. Also featured were Anthony Lowenstein and Professor Sabah Hibawi. And the introduction was by Verity Firth from the U2S Centre for Social Justice and Inclusion. Think again with Borderlands Cooperative. Join us for critical conversations about things that matter. Every Friday at 10am on 3CR Community Radio, 855am on your dial. And on 3CR Digital and streaming live at 3cr.org.au. So together, let's think again about important matters affecting us, like economics, politics, education, health, climate, and what we can do about it all. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival returns with a huge showcase of factual filmmaking. Highlights include Cry of the Forests, a look at WA's sacred southwest forests and the activists trying to protect them. Mental as Anything, a heartwarming story about what it's like to live with mental illness. The Price of Truth, a look at Julian Assange and WikiLeaks with never-before-seen interviews. And many more. July 21st to 31st at Cinema Nova, a 3CR supporter. They are also allowed to break into your phone if they have a reason to do so. And what we end up with is a surveillance state. What we end up with is multiple government agencies that have legal powers to surveil you when you have not been proven guilty. The underlying tenet of Western law is that you are innocent until proven guilty. What we're moving to is suspicion is enough to take away rights in order to build a case towards guilt. And that's not a legal framework that we agreed to. We need to keep radical voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 Colombia, on the northwest coastal area of South America, has a history shared by much of the continent. A turbulent history marked by slavery and appropriation of indigenous land during the colonial period and political instability, civil war and drug-related violence in recent years. In more recent decades, the various governments battled with left-wing guerrillas and communists following attempts to break up what was known as the National Front, which established that the presidency would alternate between the two right-wing parties. So after decades of the right-wing parties controlling the country, armed revolutionary parties were formed in a period of regime-sponsored mass terrorism. Forward to 2021, there is what has been called an anti-capitalist rebellion. I'm speaking with activist and journalist Sasha Gillies-Lakakis, and this is the first part of the interview, second part on the program next week. Sasha, what is your starting point for an understanding of the situation faced today in Colombia? 
to get a good understanding of the current situation in Colombia, I think it's important uh, that we go back a little bit, a little bit further to 1964. That is after a period uh, of what is known as the National Front or La Frente Nacional, um, and that is essentially a power-sharing agreement between the two major parties in Colombia, so the Liberals and the Conservatives, for all intents and purposes, were the same political party in terms of ideology and policy. They were both parties of the Colombian elite. Uh, and they had together put down a popular left-wing revolt in the 40s and the next 10 years, from the end of the 40s up until the, the start of the 60s, there was a, a period of intense violence and instability known as uh, la violencia, the violence, put simply. And, you know, left-wing groups were, were clashing with right-wing groups that were funded by the oligarchy. And there was, there was a general sense of chaos around the country. And what we have in 1964 is a Colombian government attack on the community of Marquetalia, uh, which is a rural area that had essentially established itself as, as a commune uh, or as a self-governing area. The government murdered dozens of people in this community. And what we see after that is the, is the creation or the amalgamation of a number of left-wing groups, the Communist Party of Colombia among them, uh, into what we now know, or what was known as the FARC, the Colombian Revolutionary Armed Forces, uh, which, is the, which was the main guerrilla group up until 2016 in Colombia. They decide, or they, they claim, that they're going to wage a war um, against the Colombian state, against the Colombian elite, to establish some sort of socialist state in Colombia. And then what we have is the Colombian government responds in kind. It begins funding or the elite that constitute the Colombian government begin funding more and more of these paramilitary groups. And by the 70s, it's actually looking as if the Colombian government might not be able to defeat the FARC by itself. And this is where the United States comes in. So the US had always had its hand in Colombia, going back even as far as to the 1910s when they, when they essentially funded the secession of Panama. Panama used to be part of Colombia, but America wanted control of the canal. So they funded a separatist movement that ended up creating the modern state that is Panama today. But for the rest of that uh, 20th century, the first half, they weren't really that heavily involved, at least so far as we know. But by the 70s, they begin approaching the Colombian elite. They begin offering substantial amounts of money and assistance and funding and arms for the Colombian armed forces, for the Colombian police, and invariably for the right-wing paramilitary groups that begin emerging. So the first paramilitary groups were actually created in large part by the CIA and the United States in Colombia. This happened in the early 1970s. The first group was called Muerte a Sequestradores, or Death to the Kidnappers. Now, the kidnappers in the, the elite size were, of course, the guerrillas. And this was really the first major paramilitary group. And, and these organisations, of course, become notorious uh, at the end of the 20th century and into the 21st century. And, you know, they'd always attracted members of the Colombian elite, so landowners, young people from wealthy families in the urban centres, and the traditional elite as well that was involved in coffee um, and cattle farming, but, but chiefly, chiefly coffee um, and later mining. So, so this is when these paramilitary groups begin to pop up and we see these first reports of these, you know, these major clashes between left-wing uh, revolutionary groups and the right-wing paramilitaries, let alone the Colombian government. And by the 1980s and, 19, and into the 90s, the US is well and truly committed to, to, to propping up the Colombian elite and the Colombian government. Literally since the 90s, millions, hundreds of millions of dollars each year 
has been funneled into the Colombian um, military apparatus. And it's got increasingly militarised with each passing year. We notice that a number of different offshoots, I suppose, of the security forces begin to emerge with this US funding. So, you know, there's civil disturbance units, there's region-specific military groups um, that, that are officially part of the Colombian armed forces, but they, they only operate in specific areas with specific targets. And, and this particularly gets very virulent in the 1990s because after, of course, the, the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, the US loses one of its main justifications for this intervention, which is, of course, the, the supposed threat of communism. And that is what they had used to attack the FARC and to intervene in Colombia. But now that the Soviet Union was gone, a new a new scapegoat, I suppose, was needed to, to continue this intervention. And that, of course, was the war on drugs. Now, that took place across Latin America, you know, Mexico, Central America, Peru. Uh, but in Colombia, it has been easily one of the most violent, perhaps with the exception of Mexico. And it's, it's, a, it's a great irony that the U.S. is supposedly diverting these hundreds of millions of dollars each year, so annually, to the Colombian government, supposedly to fight these these drug smuggling insurgents, the, the FARC, up until 2016. But really, I mean, they actually created the right-wing paramilitary groups. The, the US government created the right-wing paramilitary groups that are themselves the major traffickers of narcotics, including the really bad stuff like cocaine. And these, these newer right-wing paramilitaries that sort of end up establishing a new bourgeoisie, or what some scholars have called the narco bourgeoisie, who got rich off you know, illicit substances and the wealth that's derived from that, they coexist quite nicely with the traditional Colombian elite. You know, they're, they're both interested in maintaining their wealth. They don't really clash in terms of, you know, territory or, or produce. And they're both, you know, virulently, violently opposed to any form of social or political progressive project that could emerge in Colombia. So I think before we, you know, before we get into the main part of it, it is important to note that this issue of drug smuggling and the drug war that the US always talks about is a very, very hollow justification. And as we'll see, you know, it is just America interested in its geostrategic interests in Colombia and, of course, the resource riches in Colombia, because the CIA and the US government have been largely responsible for establishing these right-wing paramilitary groups that are now the cartels. Sasha, were these drugs manufactured in Colombia or were they coming from somewhere else and where were they going? Yeah, that's a very good question. Yeah, at the start, um, yes, they absolutely were being manufactured in Colombia. You know, as I said, up until about the, the, the late 80s, really, it wasn't that big of a problem in Colombia. I mean, marijuana had always been a, a crop there, uh, sometimes as a, a subsistence crop for poor farmers, uh, but nothing like, you know, the cocaine or the heroin or the crack that would come later. But once the US began funding these right-wing paramilitary groups and the Colombian state essentially gave them protection in exchange for fighting the FARC, they carved out tracts of land for themselves, they carved out territory in Colombia and began cultivating these harder drugs. Sometimes they established links with Bolivia and Peruvian dealers further down south. And of course, the main destination for all of this produce was the United States. It always has been and, and it will be for some time to come. There's, any, there's a, a huge market for, for narcotics in the United States, and including hard drugs um, like cocaine that the Colombian cartels specialise in. Yeah, the majority of the produce is, in, is being produced in Colombia. To this day, it's one of the largest producers of both marijuana and cocaine. 
and the main destination is the United States. In the last 10, 15 years, it's also increasingly um, gone a bit to Europe and to Australia and New Zealand, actually. But the majority is still going up to the United States. You talk about the FARC. What about the other left groups? Yeah, so that's a good point because, of course, the I mean, the FARC are the most well-known and perhaps the most well-publicised because the US has been so hell-bent on destroying them. But, the, yeah, there's a number of other uh, revolutionary organisations in Colombia. The, the FARC actually has, has ceased to, to function as a paramilitary, as, as a revolutionary guerrilla movement as of the 2016 peace accords. But one organisation, interestingly, that did initially ascribe to the peace accords in 2016, but then decided to, to renege because, because of the fact that the Colombian government wasn't abiding by the accord and, and was killing former guerrillas as it pleased was the ELN or the, the Revolutionary Liberation Army of Colombia, if you want to translate it into English. And they, perhaps a bit more so than the FARC, were, were inspired by the initial example of the Cuban Revolution or the strategies employed by the Cuban Revolution. They collaborated a lot with the, with the FARC throughout the, um, the latter half of the 20th century uh, and into the first part of the 21st century. And they are, they're the two together, are the two main revolutionary organisations that have managed to survive the whole length of history, of Colombia's modern history. There were others, but they rose and they fell because the Colombian state and the, the paramilitary have been very uncompromising in their treatment of guerrillas. And it's also important to note with these guerrilla organisations, they've become very controversial, um, at least outside of Latin America and, and within Colombia, of course, because of the media coverage that they get. They've been accused of you know, being the main sources of narco-trafficking and the main sources of the violence in Colombia, particularly the FARC. Now, it's important to clarify that this isn't the case. The main investigative journalism that has gone on in Colombia, in fact, all of it, has, has um, essentially the, the data has been compiled and they found that the FARC were responsible for about 10% of the deaths across this period of civil instability in Colombia. And the Colombian government and right-wing paramilitary groups have been responsible for 90%, 85 to 90% of all the deaths that have occurred. But you get a very lopsided image in the media that the, the FARC are somehow this you know, existential threat to, to Colombian civilians, when that just isn't the case. And as I said, with smuggling, it's very clear now that the right-wing paramilitaries are the ones that are doing the majority of the drug smuggling. Uh, and, of course, members of the Colombian government and the Colombian elite that are now heavily intertwined with the narco-bourgeoisie, if you want to call them that. And the very simple way that we that we know this is that the US war on drugs, their Plan Colombia, which started in early 2000, which was ostensibly aimed at, at reducing drug trafficking, was aimed largely against small farmers and other social groups and regions that had strong support for the FARC. Um, so these were supposedly the main drug producing areas. They were heavily militarised. Peasants had been killed up by now in their thousands what little drugs there were there were seized. As I said, it's largely subsistence drug farming, um, and sometimes they're forced into it by right-wing paramilitaries. And, you know, these areas have been largely eradicated of drugs, but the drug production and drug export from Colombia is still increasing, and that's because the right-wing groups are still producing it without any sort of punishment. They're, they're doing it with impunity because the US isn't actually interested in stopping the spread of drugs. And, and, you know, the, the, the last thing I'd, I would probably say on this is 
people have done a lot to tarnish the image of, of the FARC, and it's, un, it's undoubtedly true that they have made mistakes. It is certainly true that they did engage in a degree of drug trafficking. How much, we don't really know. I actually don't think it was that um, extensive from what I've read. And from what we know, you know, right up until the 2016 peace accords, I do genuinely believe that the leadership of the FARC were genuine in what they wanted in wanting to establish a, a socialist society. And towards the end, of course, they always said they wanted peace. They didn't want to have to fight for this. And that's why they agreed to the peace accord. They said, you know, if you if the Colombian government is genuine in its promises, uh, then, of course, we're going to agree because that's all we wanted. We, we wanted a peaceful Colombia where everyone can live dignity. Now, you know, people might disapprove of their methods, but I think it's I think it's wrong to blanket condemn this revolutionary organisation. Well, just looking back on that period, Sasha, surely it was inevitable that the left would turn to revolutionary groups when they've been locked out of power for so long. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And this is something that I think a lot of people who do study countries like Colombia perhaps don't understand. You know, it's one thing to sit back from the comfort of your own home, you know, far away from Colombia and say that, oh, my goodness, you know, the FARC killing paramilitary groups, killing supporters of the Colombian government, um, engaging in what is virtually a civil war for several decades. You know, that's just terrible. But, I mean, the, the poor people that constituted the FARC support base had been living like that for, for at least a century and a half, you know, since independence. And, it, you know, it is largely Indigenous groups, Afro-Colombians, campesinos, or peasants, um, that do constitute the base of the, or that constituted the base of the FARC support, and their soldiers as well. And, and you know, as I said, in the 1940s, there was a popular left-wing movement um, that was led by Elisir Gaitan. He actually won the elections in the 1940s, and he was killed by the Colombian elite. And that's what sparked um, La Violencia, the next decade of instability. Um, so, you know, they tried to do it. You know, they tried to play by the game. They tried to play by the rules of the game, um, of the capitalist system of Colombia's elite. They won, and the elite denied them their victory regardless. So it is, it is absolutely understandable that the, the FARC would resort to, to our, our struggle. And we have to remember, of course, that, that the Colombian government has also been far more violent in its treatment of these sorts of protesters and of these sorts of movements throughout its history because there never has been a progressive government. So they haven't had to worry about, you know, at least an electoral threat to their stability and to their power. And, and because they're, they're the most heavily funded of all of the Latin American countries from the US, they know that they're going to continue getting a steady supply, not only of arms and of training, but, but also of the moral and the, the political support of the United States, which, which can't be understated. Is this intertwined with the number of US bases there are in Colombia? Yeah, absolutely. So Colombia is undoubtedly the linchpin, the strategic linchpin of the US in Latin America. Um, it sits at the confluence of Central America, the Caribbean and South America. So it's in a very good position. And of course, it's close to Venezuela, which served their immediate interest in, in trying to topple the, um, the Bolivarian government there. And yes, you're right. So there are thousands of soldiers in Colombia of US soldiers stationed in Colombia. Now, we don't actually have accurate statistics on how many are actually there. Some people say only 2,000, some say 5,000. Some indicate that, that there's actually many, many, many more. And it's kept you know, in a very, very sort of secretive way. And there's a lot of Colombians that aren't happy about the fact that their, their country has been 
actually their, their sovereignty has been has been violated by this. And you're right that there are a number of, of Colombian military bases. There's a number of US airstrips. They can basically fly their surveillance jets and their and their helicopters across over to the Venezuelan border. As I said, it is a country that has been completely militarized by the United States and by the the Colombian elite. Now, the reasons why, as I said, one one thing is, of course, strategy. But there's another one as well, and that is, of course, the immense wealth that can be found in Colombia's natural resources, in particular, uh, mineral wealth. There's a lot of gold in Colombia in the Amazon regions. And further down, if you go into the Andes, there's a lot of other mineral deposits that are of interest to U.S. corporations. And that's another reason why the U.S. has been so eager to continue funding the right-wing paramilitary groups. It's because they actually serve as a form of protection for corporations, because the FARC, for a time, focused their attacks on U.S. corporate um, operations. Um, they attacked oil pipelines, they, they attacked mines or people working at mines, and the right-wing paramilitaries now essentially protect uh, U.S. corporate interests in Colombia. You know, it's, it's a two-pronged, I suppose, benefit for the U.S. in controlling Colombia and, and ensuring that a left-wing government doesn't come to power. What precipitated the 2016 peace plan? Well, firstly, we didn't have the you know, extreme right-wing government of Ivan Duque that we have had since 2018, really. We had Juan Manuel dos Santos. Now, he's also right-wing. He's also conservative. He belongs to the Colombian elite. But he isn't quite as, as far right as, as the current government. And, and essentially, you had the FARC and the Colombian government in a, in a virtual stalemate in terms of the, um, the strategic state of play in Colombia. The FARC were, were growing weary. We, we knew that. There were press reports coming from the FARC's leaders claiming that they were open to negotiations, as they have been for a long time, actually, but the Colombian government has, uh, until then had never really taken that offer seriously. So essentially what we had, I think, on the part of the Colombian elite was a change of strategy. I think they realised that they could exploit the peace accord. I think they, re they realised that they could essentially place a lot of the onus on the FARC to maintain the peace. So when they did end up signing in 2016 in Havana, and, and when the, the guerrillas began demilitarising, handing in their weapons, the Colombian government did exactly that. It claimed that it was up to the FARC to preserve the peace in Colombia, that they take up arms again if they were serious about the peace process. And then the Colombian military just proceeded to start killing these former guerrillas. Up to now, since 2016, close to 300 have been killed, former FARC guerrillas, at least that we know of. I'm sure there's more that we don't know of yet. You know, like in the case of Mexico, you know, these, there are mass graves that pop up all the time, sometimes 5, 10, 15 years after the crime has been committed. I'm, I'm sure that, that that is very much also the case with Colombia's FARC guerrillas. And, and, and the FARC, of course, were, were caught. You know, they were, they were stuck in a bit of a paradoxical situation. Either they take up the armed struggle again, and the Colombian government is essentially justified, you know, in the eyes of, of a few people, of a fair few people in, in then responding with repression, or they just let this happen. And, and, you know, part of their strategy was that they transformed their mili paramilitary or their revolutionary organisation into a political party, the Comunes Party or the, you know, the Common People's Party. But the, the violence against them hasn't stopped, regardless. In fact, a number of former FARC guerrillas actually ended up going to fleeing to Cuba, and they're still there, being kept there by the Cuban embassy, so that they can't be extradited back to um, back to Colombia because they'll be killed if they go back. 
So, so really, you know, the peace process was had nothing to do with peace, at least from the Colombian government's perspective. From the FARC's perspective, yes, they wanted an end to the violence. But the Colombian government just used this as a chance to, to essentially break its main force of, of opposition of, or of, of physical violent opposition. But as, as we now know, you know, that the FARC aren't the only group that are unhappy with the state of things in Colombia. And of course, you know, we had the massive um, social protests earlier this year. Just stay with that signing for a moment. What was the significance of choosing Havana as the place for signing? And was there a truce commission come? Did a truce commission come out of that peace plan? Havana had had long had links with the the FARC guerrilla movement. Cuba was, of course, supportive of their political project that they wanted to realise in Colombia. And they had always denounced the violence that was being perpetrated by the Colombian state, not only against, of course, the the FARC guerrillas, but even those civilians that were accused of being sympathisers with the FARC. In fact, between 2002 and 2008, there were 6,000 civilians murdered for being accused of, of either being FARC guerrillas or being sympathisers with that movement. And those are the 6,000 that weren't. They were just shot, arbitrarily executed by the right-wing paramilitaries and the Colombian military. Still no justice has been served for these people. Well, Havana was really the main place or the place of choice for the peace summit because it was one of the few countries that was actually willing to be the site of this peace accord. Of course, a lot of Latin American countries at that time were not willing to to obviously sort of acknowledge that there was a, a problem in Colombia or acknowledge that, that the Colombian government had to come to, to the negotiating table with the FARC because they were aligned with Bogota. But Cuba had no such problem. You know, Cuba recognised that there was a severe problem in Colombia and that negotiation was the only way to deal with it. Uh, the other Latin American states were content to follow to tow Colombia's line which was that Colombia had it under control and that more militarisation would deal with the problem. So that was one of the main reasons why the peace accord ended up being held in Havana. Also because, as I said, there was a history of, of a you know, sort of historical relationship between Colombia, Colombia and Cuba as relates to the guerrilla movement. You know, Colombian officials throughout the 20th century did often speak with their Cuban counterparts, you know, in, in trying to sort of ne- negotiate I suppose, settlements for particular conflicts or for particular skirmishes where the Cubans perhaps did know someone who was involved. So, so there was that history as well. And you're right that, that, well, supposedly a truth commission was meant to come out of the, the peace accord. Yes, in theory, yes, there was one created, the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and that was meant to investigate the war crimes that were committed uh, by both sides throughout the, the 20th century uh, and into the 21st century. But what we've seen happen is it has essentially been ignored. Ivan Duque put Mr. Ceballos in charge. He's a far-right Colombian with links to the, um, to the narco-bourgeoisie and links to the traditional elite. And he essentially ignored the problem. The, the, the Truth Commission has, has done very, very, very little in the way of actually bringing, bringing people who have committed these crimes to face charges for what they've done. Instead, it's, it's almost been a sort of a smokescreen. It's sort of like, yes, we've established this truth commission. Nothing else has been done. And, and that also provides a convenient smokescreen from the perspective that it, it might convince some people that the Colombian government isn't committing acts of violence any longer against left-wing groups because they've established a truth commission. And technically, it is working, quote-unquote. But, you know, they are continuing 
to, to persecute left-wing groups. And this um, Truth Commission has not investigated any of the recent crimes against these progressive forces. Um, so that's an indication of how corrupted this peace process is. Re really what it was, was a way to force the FARC to surrender, to, to force them into a difficult situation from which they couldn't recover. And I think the Colombian government succeeded. And thanks to Sasha Gillies-Lakakis, that's part one of an interview with Sasha about the recent history of Colombia in South America. And on the program next week, we'll have part two. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.